So you can just kind of take a little gander through the world thinks the armor of God looks like or what Google thinks. There's a couple of outliers in here, but they basically all look the same. There was one where it was like a football helmet and, and the, the breastplate was like a life jacket and there was Chuck Taylors for the shoes, but the shield was a frying pan. And I was, I don't know, it was like a back to the future type of thing. Anyway, at first when I started looking through it, I thought, gosh, this makes me so sad to see the way that scripture gets represented. But then I actually realized that it makes perfect sense in the world that we live in today. I'm going to take a quick little tangent over to a podcast I listened to by Malcolm Gladwell. Does anyone listen to Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history? He did a three-part series on The Little Mermaid not that long ago. I will tell you, I love The Little Mermaid. I am like prime Little Mermaid age. I was seven when it came out. This movie was made for me. And I'm about to spoil The Little Mermaid. So there's like a 30-year protection. If you missed it, you can just fast forward the recording. I'm so sorry. But Malcolm Gladwell talks in his podcast about how basically the last two-thirds or three-fourths of The Little Mermaid is really problematic in a lot of ways. This is not to say you shouldn't watch this movie with your kids, but it might lead to some helpful conversations afterwards. You know, one thing, Ariel signs this unbreakable contract with Ursula, but for some reason, King Triton, the all-powerful king, can't, like, overcome it, which you can talk to Tim about substitutionary atonement another time. But the other thing that they that he really gets into in this podcast, and they end up actually writing their own ending of The Little Mermaid, is because Ursula gets no redemption story. There's no, not even like an attempt or space in the story to give Ursula any other option than, spoiler, they, they basically pop her at the end of the movie with the front of the boat. And it's a pretty violent ending to her story. And you should listen to the podcast series. It's fun and might make your family conversations more complicated. But this also isn't unique to Disney. It's not unique to movies and stories and pop culture. This is everywhere. This is what the author Walter Wink calls the myth of redemptive violence. So he says that the myth of redemptive violence enshrines the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right. It is one of the oldest continuously repeated stories of the world. The myth of redemptive violence serves as the inner spirituality of the national security state. It provides divine legitimation for the suppression of poor people everywhere and the extraction of wealth from poor nations. We see this happening in our world literally today. What happened last week when the US left Afghanistan, that's not the redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence is what drove us to use that as a response in the first place. It was a result of 20 years of living into this myth. We saw it 50 years prior in Asia. We see it day after day. It's all the time. It's just not always covered in the news. I remember the conversations that were happening in 2001, 2002, I was in college at the time. And I remember the logic, the logic like made so much sense. It was like, they did this to us. This is evil. This is the solution. 
And I think it made sense to me because I was living under that myth as well, even though it wasn't like a big narrative in my family. It was, this wasn't, we weren't like go pro war military type family, but I didn't have the language, the resources, the words to really put on why I felt like this probably wasn't the solution. I didn't have the, the training, the words, or honestly, the worldview to imagine anything different than that. So I'm going to just read this quote from Walter Wink. He says, the myth of redemptive violence is in short, nationalism become absolute. This myth speaks for God. It does not listen for God to speak. It invokes the sovereignty of God as its own. It does not entertain the prophetic possibility of radical judgment by God. It misappropriates the language, symbols, and scriptures of Christianity. It does not seek God in order to change. It embraces God in order to prevent change. Its God is not the impartial ruler of all nations, but a God worshiped as an idol. Its metaphor is not the journey, but the fortress. Its symbol is not the cross, but the crosshairs of a gun. Its offer is not forgiveness, but victory. Its good news is not the unconditional love of enemies, but their final elimination. Its salvation is not a new heart, but a successful foreign policy. It usurps the revelation of God's purpose for humanity in Jesus. It is blasphemous, it is idolatrous, and it is immensely popular. So, of course, in light of this myth, when you Google the armor of God, you get the results that you do. That's not surprising at all. How else would one prepare for redemptive violence that our world tells us is necessary for good to prevail? I think Paul actually intentionally uses the imagery in this passage that would be familiar to people who read it. I mean, we don't have soldiers marching in our streets on a regular basis, but we don't have to go far to think about and visualize someone in armor. The author of Ephesians is giving a new way to understand and redefine this armor, hoping to escape the myth of violence. He says, put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers and authorities and forces of cosmic darkness and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. The armor needed for redemptive violence is what you see in Google. This is human armor. But Paul is saying we need a different kind of armor. He specifically says we need God's armor. Human armor is made for human enemies, and that is not our fight. The armor will not stand against the forces of cosmic darkness which sounds like a band name that Tim was in in college. It is also not armor for the sole purpose of defense. It's not for us to wear passively and stand waiting for evil to come and take over so that at least we're standing at the end of the fight. It's armor for active participation. 
Earlier in Ephesians, Paul says, God's purpose is now to show the rulers and powers in the heavens that many different varieties of his wisdom through the community of believers. It is our job, the community of believers, to show the powers in heaven this wisdom. The rulers, the powers, the principalities, as they're sometimes called, these are spiritual forces moving throughout the physical systems and institutions that we experience every day. In the ancient world, the physical and spiritual were much more linked. Everything that they understood in the world was either because of blessing or because of curse. In our modern world, we don't hold that same worldview consistently everywhere. And so we have to stretch a little bit to see it. The rulers and authorities that Paul is referencing aren't, we're not talking about elected officials or hired CEOs or individual people. They are spiritual powers that impact and influence the people who make decisions every day. Walter Wink also says that these forces aren't necessary, they're not inherently evil, and they're not individual. They're not always a little like red devil sitting on someone's shoulder, playing the puppet master. He says, evil is not just personal, but structural and spiritual. It is not simply the result of human actions, but the consequences of huge systems over which no individual has control. Only by confronting the spirituality of an institution and its physical manifestations can the total structure be transformed. Any attempt to transform a social system without addressing both the spiritual and its outer forms is doomed to failure. So given the fight that we are in for, Paul tells us the armor we need in order to take a stand against the tricks of the devil. And we need the full set. You can't just pick one piece out of the pile. You need all of them to fit together intentionally. Truth, justice, faith, spirit, salvation, God's word, and preparation to spread the good news of peace. We also need to be in prayer. Verse 13 says, offer prayers and petitions in the spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. You can't just put on the armor and go into the fight by yourselves without the presence and support of the community and of the Lord. So this is what it takes to stand against the tricks of the devil. We've seen the tricks of the devil before in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. In Luke 4, the devil makes three requests, temptations of Jesus. He says, turn stone into bread, worship me, and I'll give you the whole world, and jump off this building and, like, test God, prove that God's going to save you. Henry Nouwen, who's a, a writer of Catholic spirituality, has a book about leadership where he talks about these three temptations and that these are the temptations that leaders in our world experience all the time. He says, the temptation to turn stone into bread is the temptation to be relevant. He's being, uh, Jesus is being asked to prove his power by relevant actions. 
The temptation to throw yourself off the highest cliff and prove God's power is the temptation to be spectacular. And lastly, the temptation to own the whole world is, of course, the temptation to be powerful. Now it says, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. I think these temptations are ways that the powers and principalities flow through our systems in the world, breaking and corrupting. These are the tricks of the devil, the forces of cosmic darkness, the results of which leave us struggling in a world where police departments foster cultures of violence and defend violence against communities of color. Corporately owned homes with rent beyond what the average family can pay. Health systems that leave people with outrageous medical debt. Companies that make their money destroying and polluting our world for profit. U.S. agencies that imprison families at our border and reject those in need. In fact, our entire country is built on the theft of land and resources that people of European descent were never meant to have. I once heard someone say that if you see the problems of the world as individual problems, individualistic, then individualistic responses are the logical answer. But if we understand the problems of the world as systemic, then systemic change that requires a community is the only solution. These are not individualistic fights. They are communal. Paul says this armor is not for an individual person to wear, like Google tells us. It's for the community to wear. Verse 12, it actually starts, he says, we are fighting, not you are fighting. So that's what we need. We need the belt of truth so that we are reminded what we know to be true about the value of human life. The breastplate of justice, sometimes translated as righteousness, is needed for active participation in the work to make the world right. The shield of faith protects us from fear and doubt, which will inevitably permeate our efforts. The helmet of salvation supports the church's work of liberation of those in bondage. The sword of scripture, that is the word of God, is the only offensive tool here, but it is not an item to further harm, but to reveal the love of God's vision for the world. And shoes, so that we're prepared to spread the good news of peace. I'm not a hiker, but I understand that shoes and footwear are the most important thing you can take with you. The good news that these shoes prepare us to carry is what Jesus read in the temple. Good news to the poor, to proclaim the release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We carry the word of peace, not the word of violence. And do not forget prayer. 
prayer to maintain God's will above our own, prayer for each other, for strength and courage as we take up a fight that requires endurance, and prayer that we would hear the voices of those who are suffering in our world. The other element of this passage that I think is really important is the very first word, which is finally. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. That implies that it's the last thing in a whole list of a bunch of other things. I'm not going to read the book of Ephesians to you. You could probably read it in 20 minutes. I really encourage you to do it because books like this would have been sent to a community and read out loud in their entirety. We cannot take the concluding paragraph of this letter and not hold it within its full story. I have struggled with Paul over the years because I was taught to take little snippets and read them in their own little isolated box. Don't do that. Go home and read all of Ephesians. Wrestle with what you don't agree with, but hold the entirety of the vision together. The writer of Ephesians' purpose is bigger than just stand firm in the Lord. Don't just stand firm with all of your defenses and armor ready to go. He says he wants the eyes of our hearts to have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call. What is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working in the world? Paul's letter reminds us that in addition to all the qualities we listed with the armor, we also need to live with humility, gentleness, patience, accepting each other in love, making efforts to preserve unity of the spirit with peace that ties us together. The author is equipping us is he's equipping the community in Ephesus in the first century, as well as the community in America today for what it means to live a new life. One that is different and distinct from the world around us. One where the image of a soldier in armor is so vivid that the myth of redemptive violence drives all decisions. The author is pointing us to a truth of redemptive love. 